May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'd like to start today's sermon with 15 minutes of silence. Is it too soon? (laughs) Thank you all for your patience. But I actually want to start today's sermon with a story. Once upon a time, there was an all-American boy. His family moved to a small town when he was just a toddler. And, you know, when they first moved there, there were some rumors about some family drama, but he was a good kid, and his parents were good neighbors. And as he grew up, people grew to like him more and more. He was friendly, he was kind, he was smart, gentle, and generally a likable guy. By the time he headed off to college, the whole town was convinced that he was destined for good things. Well, they weren't disappointed. In fact, things went even better than they had expected. They kept getting news back about how well things were doing until when he came back to town, they decided, we should ask this guy to give a speech at the local Rotary Club. And they did, and they invited him. And as he walked up that stage, the mayor looked over at the high school principal, and he kind of smiled and nodded, you know, the looks, as if to say, good work. We did good work with this one. But during that hometown hero's talk, the mood in the room changed abruptly. In fact, he didn't even get to finish his speech because by the time he was winding down, everyone jumped up, dragged him outside, yelling that they were going to teach him a lesson. In fact, some people were even saying they were going to shoot him. Now, if you heard this story on the local news, if you read it in the Tennessean, you would be stunned. What could this golden boy possibly have said that would turn everyone against him so dramatically and so quickly? By now you probably see where I'm going, though, because this is more or less the situation that Jesus was in. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we just kind of accept things without pausing to think about what it would have been like in that moment. Maybe because we've heard it so many times before, or maybe because it's the Bible, and so we just take it and keep going. So it may be that while you were listening to this gospel reading, as Marjorie read, maybe you just kind of thought, man, the people were always against Jesus, and and then you moved on. But if we pause and think about this story, putting the basics of it into modern day, for example, as I did, we realize pretty quickly that this story is shocking. It should give us a pause. After starting his ministry, Jesus goes back to his hometown, and here at the beginning of the story, the people are interested to hear what he's saying. They seem proud of this local man who is quickly becoming famous in the area. But then a few short sentences later, everything is different. What does it take to make people who have known someone pretty much his whole life turn against him? What does it take to make people go from proudly murmuring to one another, 
isn't that Joseph's son to planning to kill him in just a few minutes? Now, the difference between the story I told and the one we heard from the Gospel of Luke is that we know what was said. So why do these few short sentences turn the people against Jesus? And we have to assume that Jesus knew how it would go down. So why was he acting almost antagonistic by saying these things? Why? Well, the story takes a little unpacking because it is so far from our context nowadays. It picks up where our reading from last week left off. In fact, really, it kind of picks up in the middle of one story that's made up from the two readings. So just as a refresher, last week we saw Jesus return to Nazareth, and he's in the synagogue, and he's invited to read, and he reads a passage from the prophet Isaiah. And this passage is one in which the prophet proclaims good news, the year of the Lord's favor, captives being released, people being healed, good news. And then Jesus declares that that passage has been fulfilled in their hearing. In other words, he who is reading it, Jesus, is fulfilling it right in front of them. The people seem impressed and almost to pat each other on the back, as if to say, look at Joseph's son, look at this local boy who turned out to be such an authoritative teacher. And that is where Jesus gets angry. His response, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in Capernaum. That response may seem cryptic to us, but there's a little more context here. Where Jesus ended his reading from Isaiah is right before the prophet goes from all this good news to declaring the destruction of Israel's enemies. And the people listening to him would have known that that was what was coming, but not what he preached about. He proclaimed this word of grace, but he left off the judgment they wanted to hear, too. So when he answers, it's like he's ironically saying, I get it. You're saying, help out those close to you before going out there and helping out other people. Heal your old buddies here in Nazareth before you go heal strangers in Capernaum. He then replies to their inner thoughts that he's just laid bare by saying that not only is he not declaring the end of, those, of their enemies, not only is he not going to stop doing miracles in other towns, even towns with more Gentiles and foreigners, but that God has always planned and actively included Gentiles and foreigners in his work of healing and salvation. What's more, he points out specific times when God helped Gentiles while apparently not choosing to help the needy people in Israel and Judah. The plan has always been for Israel to be a light to the nations. And Jesus is not about to stop that. No, in fact, he is fulfilling that. And that is when the people try to kill him. 
You see, it was Jesus's implication that God was planning to show grace to everyone, that the Messiah was there not just for Israel, that made everyone angry. The people had expectations of God, even a sense of entitlement. The people listening felt entitled to an exclusive salvation from God. After all, they were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the recipients of the covenant that God made with their ancestors, just one people group out of all the people groups of the world. They were set apart, holy unto the Lord. There were promises in the scriptures that they expected God to keep. They felt entitled to an exclusive salvation and the utter destruction of their enemies. And they expected that at such a foundational level that it probably wasn't even something they would think to question or debate. And the tricky thing here is that that sense of entitlement, it grew out of specific truths. It is absolutely true that God had made a covenant with their ancestors. It was absolutely true and remains true that God keeps his promises and that he had made promises to the people of Israel in the scriptures. They did have a relationship, a special relationship with God. But when those truths ceased to be a source of gratitude, wonder, and adoration, and became more of a source of expectant entitlement, that was when they went astray. They missed the point of the promises. They even missed the point of the covenant, that the desire of God was to draw all peoples to worship him, with Israel showing the way. So when Jesus upended those expectations, when he laid bare their entitlement and outright denied it, they were furious. Their enemies were going to be made their brothers and sisters. Their hopes were misaligned. Their God loved everyone. Hearing this message, they were, in the words of the Gospel of Luke, filled with rage to the point that they actually tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Now, it would be easy for us to look at this story and say to ourselves, tisk, 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 how terrible that they misunderstood things so badly. We would never make that mistake. If Jesus were here right now, even if he were 15 minutes late, we would listen to him and not throw him off of cliffs. But here's the thing, all believers are susceptible to the same exact sins. We can easily all go from a place of wondering humble gratitude to one of expectant entitlement based on the abundant blessings of God in our lives. If you don't believe me, let me ask you this. Have you ever gotten mad at God have you ever burned with rage at the Almighty? Maybe you yelled at him. Maybe you lashed out. Maybe you refused to go to church or even to pray for a long time. Maybe you felt like God let you down. 
Maybe you begged and begged the Lord for something on your knees, and his answer was no. Maybe you felt completely sure that God was calling you to something, but when you got close to it, the door was shut in your face. Have you ever been angry at God? The anger in each of those moments comes from a deep sense of entitlement, entitled expectation, if you will. I'm not saying that whatever prompted that anger was not terrible. I'm not saying that you were a terrible person for having been very upset in that moment. I'm not even saying that those were not terrible moments. Those moments may have torn you in two. But you would not have been mad at God if you hadn't had some sense of entitled expectation. Let me give you another example. Have you ever heard someone say, I could never believe in a God who would allow X, Y, and Z? Or I could never believe in a God who would forgive so-and-so? It's a little more subtle, but those are the same things all over again. This is just another form of that underlying assumption that we somehow deserve something more, something better from God, that we are entitled to something from God, or that we expect God God to act in a very specific way that we want or think is right. There's something about the human heart that makes us drift into entitled expectation even when we don't realize it's happening. Perhaps it's simply part of being sinners, but we all do this at one point or another. Just because we do this doesn't make it okay. Jesus completely and abruptly overturns all those expectations and that sense of entitlement in his listeners. And he wants to do the same thing in us, not out of some sort of cruelty, but out of love for us. Because as long as we are living with that sense of entitlement, we cannot love everyone who Jesus loves. We cannot know Jesus fully for who he is. And we cannot experience the fullness of God's love for us. Now, if we all do this, though, what can we do to stop? How can we uproot this from our hearts? The answer is actually found in another one of our readings for today. Our reading from 1 Corinthians. The best cure by the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit is love. You see, love is the opposite of entitled expectation. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You cannot love with a love like that and look down on someone else. You cannot love with a love like that and feel entitled. You 
That is a love that is humble. That is a love that shapes all of who you are and how you behave. In fact, a love that is completely like that is humanly impossible in this life because that is the description of God's love. But the Bible tells us elsewhere that we love because he first loved us. All godly love flows from God himself, and it is the overflow of God's love in us that allows us to love with anything even akin to his love. If we want to grow in faith, if we want to grow in our walk with God, and if we want to uproot that insidious, expectant entitlement from our hearts so that we can grow in faith and walk in closer with God, the clear path forward is to ask God to fill us with his love, to ask God to help us to love as he loves. Imagine with me for a moment if Jesus' listeners had been filled with that type of love when they heard him saying that the Gentiles would be and always had been recipients of God's grace and salvation as well. If the hearts of those people listening had been filled with that 1 Corinthians 13 type of love in that moment, instead of becoming enraged and trying to hurl him off a cliff, they would have rejoiced with Jesus at this good news. They would have been delighted because the love of God is for all people. And if we love with anything like a love of God, we rejoice at the salvation of anyone, even our worst enemies. So, with St. Paul, I pray that you may be rooted and established in love, that you may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, to tear down our entitlement and fill us with his love, to save those who seem unsavable to us, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.